Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 114, recorded on July 12th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. Thanks for doing this one a little early to help me out. And we start out with a bit of bad news for the Pale Moon project. Yeah, their archive server was compromised, and it looks like it was quite some time ago. At first, it looked like it was 18 months ago, but now it looks like at some point between April and June this year. Yeah, the initial headlines were really dramatic. It had been compromised for a long time, but further investigation revealed perhaps it wasn't as, uh, well, I I guess it's still pretty significant, but it wasn't as significant as initially reported. For those of you that don't remember, Pale Moon is a fork of the Firefox project. They forked back when there was a change in the Firefox extension. So it's got a slightly different UI and a different extensions architecture, which some people still feel is very useful. It appears a malicious party gained access to the Windows server that runs the archive, which they had been renting from a provider. Someone got on there, ran a script, and selectively infected all of the palemoon.exe archive files stored on that box. The Pale Moon developer said he just recently learned of the incident about July 8th as we record this episode. Yeah, so it looks like this is only the Windows builds that were affected, so hopefully nothing to panic about, but it does illustrate some of the difficulties, shall we say, that smaller projects come up against. I think it's actually maybe even highlighting a larger issue where in open source, it's common to fork a project and uh, that can often lead to great results. We've seen that. But this and other recent incidents are kind of underscoring that concern that maybe there is some software that's just becoming too complex for a really small team to run. I don't think it necessarily has to do with the complexity of the software itself. I think it's more the complexity of running a project, which is about way more than just the software itself. There's all the infrastructure. And if you're only a small team, then can you really be expected to know enough about security and system administration and everything if what you're good at is developing software? Fair enough. In fact, in most of the breaches that I'm thinking of here, it's been infrastructure attacks that it just seems clear the team didn't have resources to properly manage both the software development and the infrastructure side because they both can be very time-consuming jobs, especially if it's a project that has some user base to it. So, yeah, I guess you're right. There's There really are two separate issues here. There's the complexity of software maintainership and the complexity of infrastructure maintainership. And a project like Pale Moon or others have to be good at both to be secure for end users. Which is why I would reluctantly not recommend that people use software from smaller projects like this. I know that might be controversial, but if you go with something like Firefox, you've got a huge organization who are maintaining it and looking after all the infrastructure. And yes, they make missteps from time to time, but not on this scale. This is really bad. And okay, it's only the archive server, so it's only older versions, but do we even know whether that's the extent of it? Because they've written this post-mortem on their PHP BB forum, which should just raise alarm bells anyway, anyone running PHP BB at this stage. But the, the post-mortem is not really a proper post-mortem either. It's just really almost like a blog post about it, or a forum post in this case. And it just makes them seem like quite an amateurish project, which is, you know, not a very nice thing to say, but that's how it comes across. See, this is what I'm struggling with, because you don't want to live in in a world where it's too hard to stand up services and 
projects have to always use commercial hosted services. Because A, I don't think that's true, and B, that's not a future I want to live in. But at the same time, there is a burden of responsibility for something like a web browser that is handling users' private information and just their overall systems are to be respected. Like It's your duty as a project to keep their system safe when they're using your software. And in the case of this Pale Moon attack, the attackers, surprise, surprise, were going for some crypto jacking. They wanted to infect the browser with some crypto jacking malware. It wouldn't have been the end of the world, but it, it would have been harmful to the end users. So there is that burden there. At the same time, even the big guys don't always get it right. Remember recently, Mozilla had quite the outage that just really turned out to be the root cause was an expired certificate. Yeah, this was back in May when suddenly everyone's add-ons just stopped working. And yeah, as you say, it turned out to be because of a certificate that expired. And it's been quite a while, but now we do have some details on this. And it really is just mismanagement. I do appreciate them releasing a post-mortem, though. Like, we'd all kind of moved on, kind of forgotten. And it's good on Mozilla that they're willing to kind of point a finger at what they got wrong again and um, post this for everyone to review. Because these are some of the most educational kind of documents for people that are trying to learn how to secure real infrastructure. Learning from other people's mistakes is one of the cheapest way to learn. And I really appreciate it when companies post this. And this is rather thorough. In fact, they, they break down the specific root cause of why they failed to update the expired certificate. Like, you'd think it's just something really super simple, but it turned out to be several layers of failure, essentially, within the organization. It's kind of a harsh way to put it, but basically what happened. But it looks like this isn't going to happen again, and crucially, they are looking at better ways to fix it if something like this does happen, because they fixed it with their studies system, which is just not even designed for this at all. So they're looking into better ways to release quick patches in the future. So hopefully some good will come out of all of this. Well, we were just once again talking about Mozilla last week. They are in the news a lot. This time it was because they were labeled a villain by the ISPA. <laughs> yeah, the ISPA who call themselves the voice of the UK internet industry. It's a kind of industry body for ISPs. And they had labeled Mozilla a villain because of uh, their enabling of DNS over HTTPS, or DOG as everyone's calling it. But now the ISPA have backtracked, um, although not fully. They've kind of stuck a few boots in to Mozilla, but yeah, they've withdrawn their nomination for Internet Villain, at least. Yeah, they're totally backtracking, except for these six specific reasons they're totally right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they couldn't just say, no, we were wrong. They are trying to walk back their... Um position a bit here. In fact, the way they write about it, it's it's like they're new to the internet, which is adorable because they're, like you said, supposed to be the voice of the industry over there. And yet, it's like they don't know how the internet works. They write, in the 21 years the event has been running, it's probably fair to say that no other nomination has generated such strong opinion. <laughs> they go on to say, we have previously given the award to the Home Secretary for pushing surveillance legislation to regimes of leaders that are limiting freedom, but most Zilla was the line too far for them, I guess. And then they try to backtrack this whole thing by saying, but really, we're just trying to draw attention to DNS over HTTPS and how different implementations could be bad. 
that is worth talking about. They're also trying to like they're trying to throw shade on 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 D, DNS over HTTPS. I'm not really a big fan of that. I actually think it's kind of cool tech. Again, it just comes down to implementations every single time. Well, you guys did a great breakdown of uh, Doe on the last Linux Unplugged. So linuxunplugged.com slash 309. Check that out. Some uh, ways to implement it yourself and some good discussion on that. New version of Firefox 68 also landed this week with the dark mode reader view, which is uh, kind of what I'm excited about. Also nice to see a, a new ESR release based on 68 now, too. Yeah, it looks to be a very solid release. I haven't actually got it yet on Ubuntu. I'm waiting for that update, but I'm sure it will come down pretty soon. Also, a bit of follow-up from another story last week. It looks like Microsoft is going to be accepted into that Linux distro's mailing list. This is a post on that mailing list. They write, Microsoft doesn't look all that different from many other large corporations, including some which already have their Linux distro teams represented on the list. There's another kind of interesting conversation that's now happening on the side. It's like, what do we bring Microsoft in as? They say maybe we shouldn't label them as just Microsoft as a member of the Linux distros. Microsoft is much more than just their Linux-based products and services. We list Amazon Linux, AMI, rather than Amazon, and Chrome OS rather than Google. And we also separately have Android listed rather than Google. And it seems like a funny thing to kind of be going back and forth about, but it really comes down to setting the expectation for researchers that are interacting with this Linux distro's mailing list. You'll recall, this is really a list to discuss security issues. And so researchers will interact with this list, and they don't want them to have the mistaken impression that because Microsoft is now on the list, that they can notify Microsoft about their other products' issues. It's a, it's a small thing, but when you think about something five, ten years down the road, it, it really makes a big difference. So now they're working out the semantics. I don't think there was ever any doubt this was going to happen, Joe. You had Greg KH backing this. All kinds of big companies are in this list. Oh, yeah, there was a little bit of dissent on the list from people who used M dollar sign. So, <laughs> you know, they were just ignored, obviously. And it seems that this list is for grown-ups, really, who accept that Microsoft are running some Linux products now, some distros, essentially, and that they really ought to have access to this. And yeah, they are no different from any other huge company. So obviously, you need to watch them, but you judge them by their actions. Well, how about another follow-up? The Raspberry Pi Foundation has confirmed that the recently released Raspberry Pi 4 may not work when using certain USB-C cables. Yeah, this really comes down to a resistor, which costs a fraction of a dollar. And I saw some maths that said if they sold a million units of these Raspberry Pi 4s, they might save $500 by cutting this tiny corner. And uh, for that $500, I think it's going to cost them a lot more than that in bad PR. <laughs> well, and they're also going to have to do some engineering to revise this and then update the boards and manufacture those as well, because the Foundation has said they're going to attempt to address this in a hardware revision, which means if you bought one early like I did, you're probably stuck with this particular challenge. It's not too bad. Really, it's the smart chargers that are a quote-unquote e-marked cable. They try to suss out what the Raspberry Pi is, and they will incorrectly detect it as an audio adapter. Then it just doesn't supply the right amount of power. Um, almost all of the cheapo USB-C cables and stuff that come with, like, Android phones, um, they will work. It's really the nicer ones, like laptops or or nicer, smarter, quote-unquote, cables that you're going to have a problem with. And if you buy the power adapter with the Raspberry Pi, you're going to be fine. Yeah, I was suddenly very happy that I was forced to buy uh, a semi-official one that has worked absolutely perfectly for me. 
So yeah, no problems. And that's what they suggest, buy an official power supply, which is a bit rich, isn't it? Yeah, although it seems, and this isn't 100%, but it seems most cables that are USB-A to USB-C or USB-B to C, they typically are just dumb pass-through cables. And if they can supply enough power, you're good. They are typically not e-marked. Yeah, so it's not a huge issue, but it is still pretty embarrassing for Raspberry Pi. What is huge is that IBM's acquisition of Red Hat has officially closed, with the exception of Brazil. This is that $34 billion acquisition, and I believe the final number was $190 per share in cash, plus some loans on IBM's side, and we got ourselves a final deal. Yeah, and once again, they're talking up the hybrid cloud stuff and how nothing's really going to change at Red Hat, and it's just they're going to have the the sales power of IBM and their experience and everything. And the Fedora project leader, Matthew Miller, has made some comments saying that Fedora's fine, it's going to just carry on as it is. And so it's really, the message is business as usual, but just more of it. For me personally, the Fedora side of the story is interesting. It's hard to really say what happens in Red Hat. It's going to be harder to measure from the outside. But what happens to Fedora will be right in front of all of us. And I'll be watching. And I think Matthew Miller knows that a lot of us are watching. That's why he got out there really early and started talking about how this changes nothing. We're continuing on. We'll we'll see about that. I hope so, because um, a lot of the community depends on some really great projects that are born out of Fedora. Yeah, and IBM and Red Hat are very aware of that, and so you would hope that Fedora would be left alone to do its thing and make its own decisions, because it's the sort of canary in the coal mine, isn't it? But as I said at the time of the announcement of this deal, I honestly think it's good. I know some people are very kind of skeptical about it, but I I think that IBM really will just use their sales experience and you know, the, all the money that they've got and the infrastructure to just facilitate Red Hat doing what it does, which is create a bunch of open source software and sell services very profitably around that software. We'll see. It's definitely one of the more fascinating stories of the last few years. One of the most fa- fascinating stories of the software industry ever, actually. We'll see where it goes. We'll see, Joe. In the meantime, I'm a little more upset about what's going on potentially with GNOME software and support for Snaps. Yeah, it looks like in Fedora 31, the Snap plugin is going to be disabled in GNOME software. It was definitely trending in that direction. As we record now, that may not be the case. Richard Hughes, who we've talked about before on the show in the context of the uh, firmware update project, great work over there, is one of two primary developers of GNOME software. Now let that sink in for a moment. There's contributors to GNOME software, but there's two primary developers, and Richard Hughes is one of them. And he wrote, recently Canonical decided that they are not going to be installing GNOME software in the next LTS, preferring instead to ship a Snap Store by Canonical rather than GNOME software. The new Snap Store will obviously not support flat packs or even firmwares for that matter. The developers are currently signed to work on GNOME software, have been reassigned to work on the Snap Store, and I'm not confident they'll be able to keep up both the old and new code bases. The existing Snap plugin is not very well tested, and I do not want to be the one responsible when it breaks. Um, the crux of it here really is, is that Canonical is switching to their own software store in Ubuntu LTS, the next LTS, not the version that's about to ship. That will still be using GNOME software. But in the version after that, they have begun, as we record, 
about 20 days ago, the first patches were committed. They have begun developing their own store. It hasn't been finished. It may not even end up in the LTS. The other thing that was surprising about this is the Snap maintainer for Fedora was caught off guard completely by this. Neil writes in the comments, uh, this is completely news to me. <laughs> as far as I know, Canonical is still maintaining the Snap plugin upstream, which is the case. And he also writes how they've been recently getting very close to full confinement support using Snaps and SE Linux on Fedora. So we're getting really close to that as well. What reads as a bit of a snafu between Canonical and the Fedora maintainers reveals what a lot of rumors had been implying for a long time, that the Canonical developers have to really walk on eggshells around the upstream GNOME and Fedora team, and that the support for snaps in GNOME software was really kind of conditional. As long as Canonical played ball, they'd keep it. But as soon as Canonical didn't, they took that ball. I give credit to the Canonical developers who engaged in this conversation in a very rational, level-headed approach, and they came to some common ground here. In fact, we even are revealed a bit of what perhaps will be the future of Flatpaks and funding Flathub developers. There's some interesting things in here, including that GNOME software is already falling underneath its own weight and that they're struggling to reduce its complexity. And there's some things that the uh, Snap plugin developers can do to help with that. It looks like we've kind of found a happy middle ground right now. Snap plugin support will continue. That may change in the future. But even if they were to remove plugin support, Neil could simply package it up and then the end user could just install that package and everything would be fine. Just like with the 32-bit situation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's always another solution. There's always another way to solve this problem. It's never the end of the world. I think one of the problems with open source development is that everything is out of the open. And that's obviously one of its big strengths as well, but it, it can be its Achilles heel because in cases like this, it's just a, a very sort of public squabble almost is what it looks like. And I don't think there's any way to avoid that because of the open nature of the development. But it does reflect badly on everyone, really, when this sort of stuff happens. It is. However, in this case, we did actually see them all work it out on their own in a public forum without name calling. Really a very rational, reasonable conversation considering what was at stake. It feels like, though, we've just punted the issue for now. Like now there is this line, and when that when that new store does go live, we're going to be there again. We're we're going to be right back where we're at, and maybe it does make sense, right? The, the gnome folks and Red Hat and the Fedora team, they're all in on flat packs, and if Canonical shipping their own store and doesn't need that support upstreamed anymore, so that way it's functional on Ubuntu, why should they maintain their competitors? product, I, I guess. Like, I'm trying to think about it from their side, and I can see some rationale there. Um, it's just sort of the timing of it, because the project's so brand new, it may not even go anywhere. It, it's just so early days that it, seemed, it seemed, seemed a little early. Like, the reaction was, they were ready to jump. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it feels like they were just looking for an excuse, really. And it's sad to see, because we hoped that there would be great cooperation, and that with a major distro like Ubuntu switching to GNOME, that it would mean that GNOME benefited from all those extra users and all the extra development. But if we're starting to see hostility happening, then 
it's just not good for anyone. I know. I, I agree. You just you want to see the desktop be successful, and and this stuff seems counterproductive to that. But I got to bring it back to at the end of the day, they did work it out. For now, the cats and dogs continue to get along, Joe. Can you imagine big proprietary companies who are rivals working together on software like this? Well, not at all, really. And that's the nature of open source. And obviously, you're going to have a few issues here and there. But ultimately, it is much better to do it this open source way. That's a great point. And, you know, props to developers on both sides of this situation who end up essentially becoming corporate ambassadors. They are dealing with interactions that could have millions of dollars worth of ramifications for either side. And it's just not even part of their job description. Yeah. So regardless of however this goes, you know, tip of the hat to both sides for having to wear that extra hat when also having these technical conversations. This stuff's fascinating. It's what makes open source tick. This and all kinds of things make free software really something to follow. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you're a newshound, which you might be if you listen to this show, be sure to check out Linux Unplugged 310 when it lands on Tuesday. It's our review of the year's big stories so far, where we think things are going, what we got right, and what we got wrong. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.